Welcome everybody to the first episode of Jesus is Supernatural. And I'm so excited that you could be here joining me wherever you are, in your car, in your house, living room, in your middle of your workout, your work day, your lunch break, whatever it is, wherever you're listening, thank you so much for tuning in. I am excited for this episode. I'm excited for this series. And just to give you a little insight on what this podcast is meant to be, um, every day we look at the world around us and we we perceive what is happening through our eyes as reality itself. We see trees, we see houses, we see cars, we see people. And too often we become too engrossed with only what we see in the physical. We have no idea what reality actually looks like. And the word supernatural often... Uh, most people would accompany with things like ghosts or witches or demons and all sorts of things, hauntings, uh, graveyards, these kinds of things, vampires, werewolves. That is what the world thinks of when they think of the word supernatural. And unless you're like me and you've, you know, had a change of pace, you've had a radical encounter with Jesus, maybe that's what you think of when you hear that word, or quite frankly, depending on what your worldview might be, uh, it might be a scary word for you to hear. You may not know how to even translate that word, or it probably doesn't even appear in your daily vocabulary. And that's what this podcast is about. It is how we as normal everyday people can have supernatural encounters that change our lives, completely shift our perspectives and quite frankly, just get us closer to the God-man, Jesus, who is himself supernatural. And so whether you're joining and listening in and you have no grid, no grasp of the word, uh, you might be a Christian, you might be a atheist, a Muslim, whatever you are, whatever you identify yourself as, it's my hope that you can listen to this podcast and really just get a picture of what what the world might look like that you've been missing out on? What is it that you haven't paid attention to? Or quite frankly, what is it that you're completely unaware of? And what is available to you? So whether you've had supernatural experiences, you're crazy on fire with Jesus, you've seen physical healing, or you've seen uh, a vision, you've been in a trance, or any other type of supernatural encounter, or you've never had those things. Maybe you don't even believe in those things, or maybe you believe in them, but only for a time, a few thousand years ago, for people that existed long before we do. And this podcast is for all of you. It's for the people that are hungry for more and for the people that just want to understand, or quite frankly, even the people that want to discredit supernatural encounters. I welcome you to listen to this podcast. I'm excited to have you with me. I know uh, in my years of doing ministry and f quite frankly with life that things that people do that they're passionate about will not only draw a crowd of equally passionate folks, but often it draws a lot of criticism. And so I welcome whatever comes as a result of this podcast. 
Today's episode, as it is episode one, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. I am your host, Isaac Beck, and quite frankly, this podcast is going to fluctuate between my own supernatural encounters, my own stories, and those of my guests, and I'm really excited about some of the guests I'll be having on this show. I'm not quite ready to announce who they are, but I promise some of them you may have heard of, some of them you may not know, but I promise after you listen to their stories... It's going to change your life. It's going to change your perspective, or at least it's going to add fuel to the fire and to your hunger. But about me, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Baptist family. My family's been Baptist preachers for forever. Um, not just my father, but my great grandfather and, you know, uh, people on my my dad's side and on my mom's side. And if you go back 12, 13 generations, you're still going to find pastors. You're going to find politicians. You're going to find U.S. presidents. And I imagine even deeper, you'll find royalty on one side or the other. But um, I've always had stories of influential people being in my family. And luckily, I've had that confirmed here in the last few years as we've invited these 23andMe and and uh, Ancestry.com apps and websites into the world, and it's made it so much easier to to discover. Sometimes your grandparents don't just make things up; sometimes they actually tell you the truth. And so I've been so honored by that my whole life, and always had this inner idea that whatever I was on this earth for was meant to be amazing and powerful and great. As a young kid, my only idea of power was politics, politicians, presidents, judges, people that changed and set laws or at least gave off the appearance that that's what they were doing. And so as a very young kid, I was not only convinced I could be, but convinced I would be president of the United States. And at one point, if you ask my mother, I can promise you I wasn't just president. I was king of the world, explaining to my sisters and my family Whenever they would ask my plan for world domination, I think we even have a couple home videos of me at about four or five or six years old explaining my world domination and world peace. And to be completely honest with you, I think it's a pretty good plan even to this day. I'm sure it's a better plan than I, I could come up with now. But that's my that's my past. Baptist kid. Grew up in that life, had no idea, no grid for the supernatural, no understanding. We had wild stories. I remember as a missionary's kid in Belize, whenever we'd be on deputation or whatever, there would be there would be some stories that I would hear that I couldn't quite comprehend. There would be things that would happen that didn't make sense with our American theology. And even when we moved back and my dad became a pastor here in the U.S., I would hear interesting stories that, that didn't make sense. And, and luckily for me, my, my mother's a dreamer and several people in my family are dreamers. And so though a lot of conservative thinking Christians have no uh, respect for dream life, or at least no understanding of the significance of your dreams, I never questioned that my dreams meant something or that they were messages from God. I knew that when I dreamed things, they happened. And so um, 
as a young kid, I think I was constantly dealt with the shame of being a know-it-all. And in, in some regard, I probably deserved it. In another regard, it wasn't that I knew everything, but I did feel like I knew a lot of things. And often things would happen, and when they did happen, I never never felt like I got the credit for them happening. I, I remember um, as a young kid telling some cousins of mine that the the Warriors, if you're an NBA fan, were going to win multiple championships and that this young rookie, Steph Curry, was going to be something amazing. And at that time, if you followed the NBA in those years, that that was not obvious. That was not something anybody was picking up on. And quite frankly, uh, when it began to happen, when the Warriors created the powerhouse that we all know now, and Steph Curry is a household name here in the U.S. and the world over, nobody else remembered that I had said that, but I remembered that. And there's other things that would happen as a kid that I would speak out and, and knew that, that they were going to happen, but nobody would believe me when I said it, and nobody believed that I'd said it after it would happen. And so this grew in me, this inner conflict of how do I resolve this idea that I, I know things before they're to happen and why does no one believe me that I know them and how do I know them? I remember even at the age of, I believe I was 14 and my youth pastor had been fired uh, that morning. It was a Sunday morning. And I was uh, getting ready for church, and the thought suddenly popped into my head, Steve no longer works at the church. And, and I, just, I just knew that something had happened, and that before I got there, uh, there had been a conversation that I obviously was not in on as a 14-year-old. And I got to the church and, and saw uh, my youth pastor and his wife and and I could tell that there was a look of dismay, and it only confirmed what I'd already heard in my head. And so afterwards, I remember my dad sat me and my sister down in his office, and he said, I have something to tell you. And I said, well, you fired Steve. <laughs> and I'll never forget the look on my dad's face. And uh, he looked at me and said, yeah, how did you know that? Of course, I couldn't explain, just like any other time I knew something. I had no realm of explanation. All I knew is that I knew them. I didn't know how or why or how I got this information. It's hard to explain that you're thinking things. And so I loved the game of chess because it that was one thing that made sense where you could be steps ahead of people and they expected it. But in the real world, it's not an expectation most people have. That was my only uh, knowingly early encounters with the supernatural was this prophetic gifting that I now know it's called, but at the time I had no realm. I thought I, I thought I was a psychic. I thought that was evil. Uh, sometimes I would even think perhaps I'm the antichrist. And then I would think, would the antichrist know that he's the antichrist? That doesn't feel like that could be accurate. And then the other part of me was like, well, of course he knows he has to know that he's the antichrist because why else would he be if not by choice? And, and and I would wrestle with these thoughts even as a young teenager all the time wondering if I was deeply evil or good, what I, what would I be good for? What would I do? And yet still always aware 
that beyond this inner conflict, I knew that whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing would be significant, that I'd be speaking to stadiums of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people over my lifetime, having influence in law, having influence over leaders, being friends to million and billionaires, knowing actors, the influential, doing TV interviews. All these things are thoughts I have never questioned, never thought maybe, but things I've known will happen, things that at this point in my life, I can say some of them have happened. In fact, a lot more of them than I would have thought at the young age of 26. I don't say any of that to brag. I just say it because it's true. And I don't shy away from the truth, even if it makes me sound arrogant. And quite frankly, I say it to make up for that kid who at 16, 17 had all of these thoughts of influence and never knew if he was good enough for the the level of influence that he would have because he knew nobody believed in him. Now, that's a dramatic statement. Of course, there were people that believed in me in some regard, maybe not to the extent that I did, but but in some regard they did. People that fought for me, people that prayed for me, all these different things, but but never believing that anyone actually believed in me and believed in what I said. And so I, I speak the truth about who I am because I know it to be true and I've known it to be true for a long time. And so if anybody's going to believe in me other than Jesus himself, it might as well be me, right? I think that's what we should all be aspiring to do is believe in ourselves a little bit more, not because of ourselves, but because of the will of God on our lives. But if you're partnered with the Holy Spirit, then your will becomes his will, or his will becomes yours. And I said that exactly how I meant it. Sometimes the Lord alters our perceptions of his will to fit what might fit ours. And I know that might sound like a very difficult thing for some of you to manage, but I would counter with the story of Moses when God offers to wipe out the entire population of the Israelites. Tells him, Moses, why don't I just start over? I'll just kill them all and we'll start with you again and we'll do this again because they suck, man. I'm paraphrasing if you can't tell. And Moses replies, no, don't do that. These are your people. He reminds him of who he is. He reminds him of the things he spoke over him. And so God decides not to. Now, of course, there's other passages where you look at the book of Job. God says he doesn't change his mind. Who am I, a man, that I would change my mind? Of course not. That's what he says to Job as he rebukes him. We have conflicting and contradictory verses. That's something we'll get into in another episode. The contradictions that do exist and yet are completely ignored by modern Christians because they make them uncomfortable and because their faith is in a book and not in a God. But that's for another episode. Back to my life story. Baptist kid who knew things and didn't know why. At the age of 14, I began doing 
and taking part in prescription drugs. I'd had a dentist appointment and had my wisdom teeth pulled and I'd had a lot of social issues at school. Part of it probably reflecting the internal conflict that was beginning inside my own head, but outwardly I felt abandoned, alone, uh, suicidal, um, desperately suicidal for many years. Not necessarily wanting to be dead, just not wanting to be alive. And so I took these prescription drugs for this dentist appointment, but uh, quickly realized that when I took them, I became very self-confident in a way that I didn't feel outside of being high on anything. And so that got me into other things and trying more things. And the very short version of this story is that for seven years, I was a drug addict, hopelessly lost, thinking he found it all, deciding I will be a man of influence by being the most influential uh, drug guy in the state that I lived in. I knew that certain people would buy drugs from this guy, and if you wanted cocaine, you had to go to this guy, and if you wanted this, you had to go to this guy. But nobody seemed to be able to get you whatever you wanted, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the guy that could get you whatever you wanted when you asked, where you didn't have to go to five different people. You could just go to the guy, and I'd be that guy. And I figured that would get me some realm of fame, and to a certain extent, I believe it did. I remember one moment I was with a friend in a Taco Bell in, in just outside Grand Rapids, Michigan, when I was 17, and a group of young kids came in, recognized me, hours away from my actual home in a place I'd never been before, a place I'd never even sold drugs before, or knew that I'd done anything there, and yet these kids knew who I was the second I walked in, even coming up to me and asking me to confirm, are you Isaac Beck? Yes, I've had some of your stuff, and I had this dramatic non-supernatural encounter of, wow, I kind of hate that. I I love to be recognized, but I hate the reason that they recognize me. I hate that these kids are 15, 16. You know, when you're 17, a 15-year-old is a baby. And man, it, it broke my heart to think that kids younger than me were partaking in something that I had created hours away and being sold to somebody and then to another person and then somehow finding their way into their hands. But that didn't stop me. So I went a few more years and of course, after seven years, I got free. And this episode, though, I've spent the first 20 minutes kind of in introducing you to me. I'll spend the last 10 minutes explaining at least part A of that story. In 2017, I was kicked out of college. I'd done two years at a Christian, small Christian conservative college down in the state of Missouri. I will not name this university. I have no reason to. If you know me, you already know who they are, but I hold no ill will toward them. And so I find it irresponsible to make it public knowledge. Though it's probably very easy to find. <laughs> Even as I say that, I'm like, well, you can probably look it up. <laughs> Not the point, though. 
After two years, I was kicked out of this college for reasons I don't agree with. Um, but quite frankly, they had every right to kick me out, just not for the reason that they did. Um, it could have been for any other number of reasons. My life fell apart. I was living on campus, of course, and so I lost my dorm privileges. Kicked out of my house, kicked out of college on the same day and fired from my job because I worked as a security officer on campus. My whole life fell apart. I called my pastor. He knew nothing about it. He was also a professor at this college. And within a couple days, I was asked not to return to a church that I loved. Though I was still doing drugs and partying, I'd grown quite fond of the atmosphere that, that they had. These people were genuine Christian believers, or so it seemed. And, and I would still say today that, at least in their own perception of the world, they do have a true faith. Whether that faith is real, I, I cannot be the one to say. Who knows if a man is truly saved but God himself? All I know is they believe it's real. After that, I moved home. My soon-to-be fiancé moved me home. We had a plan. I would work at home for a few months back in Michigan. She would finish her last year of college early. Then we'd get married, and I would move to the beautifully forgotten state of Iowa. Praise God for plans that do not make it. That was the plan, and then, of course, shortly after moving home, I, I found out that my girlfriend had been cheating on me pretty extensively for a while, um, perhaps as long as a couple months. And so the little bit of life that I had built for myself had completely crumbled in a matter of a month, <laughs> really shorter than that, just a couple weeks. And every sense of existence that I had felt was gone and soon returned the constant suicidal thoughts, but they were 10 times worse than they'd ever been. I told my parents that I smoked weed and planned to keep doing it. I didn't tell them about the other things that I was involved in, but I never felt like that was necessary information. They didn't like it, and of course that did not help our relationship, but they were gracious enough to allow me to stay at their house while I, I can't even say put my life back together. I wasn't trying to do that. I was just trying to be alive. I would cry myself to sleep practically every night. I would wake up in the morning. A friend of mine was kind enough to get me a job after I'd been asked to resign a manager's position that I'd had at a business I was working at in my hometown for a while. I'd sold an ounce of marijuana in a way that one shouldn't. <laughs> but because I sold weed to several cops in the area, as well as a lot of uh, past employers and a few other well-connected people, they they wouldn't fire me, so instead they just asked me to resign. And so I was working this lawn care job with a buddy of mine. He was so kind to get me a job within a couple days. We would go to work. We would get high on the way to work. We would get high often. 
at work. We would leave. We would go hang out with some other friends of ours. We would get high. I would go home. I would begin to cry. I'd get high a little bit more, and then I would cry myself to sleep, wake up, and the whole day would start over again. Every day was the same cycle. There was nothing ever new. Some days we'd go fishing. Some days we didn't, but it didn't make any difference. Every day was the same, just bland and tasteless. After about a month of incredible pain, wishing every day that I wouldn't wake up the next, I was angry at God, and so I prayed. I know too much to say you don't exist, which I meant. I knew he existed. I never questioned his existence. I just questioned his love. I never knew God's love. And I thought he hated me. So I said to him in prayer, you hate me. And it's obvious. Will you not just give me three years of peace? And then you can kill me and send me to hell. And I don't care if I have just three years away from you. Three years of peace. A few days later, I was crying in my room again, speaking out loud and realizing very quickly as this thought popped into my head, you know that you're still praying even if you don't close your eyes, bow your head or say amen, right? And I thought, wow, that's true. Of course I am. The next thought was, I must need God, because why else would I still talk to him even though he's treating me so abusively? So I said, I must need you. I don't know how to need you, and I don't know how to like it, but you have to do something for me. And I began to repeat this phrase from an encounter that I had in Barcelona, Spain, and I'm really excited to share more about that trip on another episode with you. But for now, all you need to know is I repeated the phrase, I wish I could be on fire. I wish I could be on fire. I wish I could be on fire. I wish I could be on fire over and over again until I fell asleep. A phrase, quite frankly, that we were taught in school, in college, not to say because it would be the equivalent of asking for the wrath of God to be sent to damnation, to be just like any other sinner. When you ask for fire, you're asking to be sent to hell. But for some reason, it was the only words that I could think of, the only words that would come out of my mouth. I wish I could be on fire again. I wish I could be on fire. And I fell asleep. The next day was different. I woke up with a new thought in my head. Instead of my perpetual longing for death, I woke up with, there must be a reason I lived in that city. There must be a reason I lived in that city. There must be a reason. There must be a reason. And it's probably not this college. It must not be this girl. It must not be this job. It must not be this church. But there must be a reason. And that thought would plague me every day for the next three months until finally one day, I told my parents, I'm moving back, and I don't know why. I just know I need to. They didn't want me to go, of course, uh, presumably assuming that I was just going somewhere to off myself or just to be hurt again. But they believed if I needed to go, then I should do it. And so I did. I didn't tell anyone around me, didn't tell a single friend, just mom and dad. Frankly, because I knew that if I did, they would talk me out of it. 
and I knew I had to go. So I packed up my Tahoe. I drove 12 hours back to the city that had so hurt me. I texted a guy on the way. I asked him for if he knew anybody that needed a housemate or, or a roommate or anything. He said, I do, actually. <laughs> I need one today. When do you get in? I said, I'm about to arrive just a couple of hours. The monthly rent was the exact amount of money that I had in my wallet. I figured it was just a coincidence. It never creeped into my head that that might be God. The next day, after I arrived, I moved my stuff in. I laid on the small mattress I had on the floor. And I woke up that next morning completely alone again with a new thought. Why the heck did I do that? Why did I just move across the country? where I have no friends left for me here. I have no family left for me here, though technically I have family there. Why would I do that? All my friends were beginning to figure it out that I'm not there. They're checking my location. What are you doing? Assuming that I've had a mental breakdown, which of course, from the outside looking in, I think you could say I was. And I texted a guy that I barely knew the only person that would come to mind. And I said, I don't know if you still live here, man, but if you do, I'll give you anything I own if you promise to come out and hang out with me for the rest of the day. Because if you don't, I'm not quite sure that I'll make it through the night. And then I immediately texted him back and said, I'm really sorry if that was really deep, really, really fast. But I'm just trying to be real and I need somebody he very quickly texted me back, asked for my address, said he'd be over ASAP. And he was kind enough not to take me up on taking anything that I had. He said instead, if you truly needed someone that bad, I'm happy to be here. We got over the initial awkwardness. Of course, we'd never really done anything together. I'd seen him only a few times, maybe 10 at most, our last interaction hadn't exactly been fantastic, and so I assumed, well, I don't really know what I assumed. I just knew I needed someone. But it was awkward, I'll tell you that much. It was awkward. After a couple dabs and a line of coke, we quickly got over the awkwardness. We spent the day getting high. And then about four o'clock happened. And I looked at him and I said, all right, man, what do you want to do tonight? Do you want to go to a bar? Do you want to just get high? You want to stay here? You want to get some food? Like what, what would be, what would be fun? And he said, I know what we should do, but I don't want to tell you. I want it to be a surprise. And so I thought, you know what? I'm a fun guy. I like surprises. That sounds cool. So I said, sure, let's do it. So a couple hours later, we continued getting high. He looked at his phone and said, oh, we have to go. It starts soon. So we got into my Tahoe. We drove 
Through this city, he directed me only with hand motions, refusing to give me even an address or any sense of direction beyond, go here, drive straight, go through this light, turn left here. We pulled into what looked like an abandoned strip mall. There was Party City and then a bunch of empty looking buildings, a dark alleyway. There's maybe one or two street lamps on in the parking lot. He has me park the car. We get out. I look at Andrew, and I I assume, of course, he, oh, he's going to rob me. My paranoia is telling me, why would he drive me here except to rob me? It doesn't make any sense. I put a knife in my back pocket just in case I need to get out of this situation. I'm trying to decide what would I rather him steal, my Tahoe or my wallet? What's more important? What's easier? Do I let him take my phone? Do I let him take anything? All these thoughts are going through my head and I keep a distance, but I say, okay, Andrew, what are we doing here? Very quickly, he looks at me, looks around and he says, well, since we're here, I guess I can tell you I'm taking you to a prayer house. I've never been to a prayer house. And so it'd be a long story to explain. And I've only got a couple more minutes on this episode for part A, but in my realm of thinking, Going to a prayer house meant doing heroin. And so I thought, what? I could have been a heroin addict in Saginaw, Michigan. Why would I have to come all the way down to Missouri to be a heroin addict? I know so many people that do heroin. I All this access. It, but I thought, you know what? I don't know. I'm not sure. And all these thoughts are blasting my head. And I look at him and I'm like, Andrew, I'm not sure. If I'm ready for that. And Andrew very softly put his hand on my left shoulder. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Are you kidding me? Of anyone I have ever met, you need this. And I thought, wow, this guy doesn't even know me, but he's so confident that I need to try heroin. Maybe I am supposed to be a heroin addict. And so I said, okay. Mind you, never communicating the fact that I assumed we're going to do heroin, and he obviously is not taking me to do heroin. As we walk down the dark alleyway, I take my belt off. I'm flexing my left arm. I'm trying to decide which one is better, but I donated plasma for a couple years, so I know that it's easier to get into my left veins than my right veins. And so I figure, well, it's closer to the heart. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't really remember. What would my friends tell me to do? So I'm flexing both arms, getting my blood pumping, taking my belt off in order to create a tourniquet. We walk to this door. It's a glass window next to it. It's black inside. I can't see anything. Andrew opens the door. And when I look inside, I see about 13 to 15 people in various stages of worship. At the time, of course, I don't know what they're doing. I just know some people are praying. Some people are, they look like they're napping. They're laying straight down on couches and on the floor. And other people are standing and singing and moving. And there's a guy playing the acoustic guitar in the corner. And there's all this mismatched carpet everywhere. And I look at him. I see a cross on the wall in Christmas lights. And I turn around and I look at Andrew and I said, oh, it's like a church. 
And he said, yeah, where did you think we were going? I went, oh, okay, right, right, right. No, I knew that, of course, church, right. I turned back around, I took one step into that doorway, and I promise you that the very second my foot hit that ground, it felt like I had walked into a brick wall. And I don't mean emotionally, I don't mean spiritually, I mean physically, it felt like I had just stepped into a completely new realm. I had walked through a door, a wall, I can't explain it other than a brick wall. If you were to walk straight into the wall in your bedroom, that is what it felt like, this overwhelming sensation that the room I am now in is completely different than the world I have just left behind. And to top it all off, I feel nothing but extreme peace coursing through every fiber of my being. And I am 100% stone cold sober. As soon as my pinky toe hits that ground, my entire world shifted. And that, my friends, is a beautiful place to stop. Part A. Thank you so much for tuning into episode one. I'm excited for episode two, episode three. Oh, episode four is going to be awesome. I'm so excited to have you guys with me. Thank you so much for coming on the journey. Tune in next week. What's up, party people? Thanks for listening to the Jesus is Supernatural podcast. This podcast was edited and produced by Nikeo Productions. To check out other shows by Nikeo, just search Nikeo Productions wherever you listen to podcasts.